there's nothing simple about reforming health care. And efforts to change our automatic assumption that more care is always better care can both enlighten and possibly lead to new, equally imprecise assumptions. In her February 3rd doctor and patient column in the New York Times, Dr. Pauline Chen suggests that the notion of aggressive care may be getting a bad rap these days as we try to make better decisions about when and which medical interventions are truly called for. Perhaps because we're confusing the word aggressive with an outright aggression or aggressive behavior, things we might well want to temper. But aggressive care does have its place in medicine with some new data to back it up, Pauline Chen points out in that column. So why did Pauline Chen choose this topic to write about? That's among the things we'll explore with the physician columnist herself on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience as a downloadable file via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. So in a 24-7 digitally blanket news world, one of the most refreshing things about Pauline Chen's writing in the New York Times is that it's original, full of great narrative, and does cause us to stop and think. So it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Chen, who is joining us on the line and via the internet. Pauline Chen is a surgeon, author of the book Final Exam, A Surgeon's Reflections on Mortality. She's the writer of a weekly column for the New York Times called Doctor and Patient, and a practicing physician in the VA Boston healthcare system. Welcome, Pauline. Thank you, Matt. All right, there you are. <laughs> Great. <laughs> We're kind of basic on the show, so uh, we'll, we'll, uh, uh, we don't unfortunately uh, have a zillion photos of uh, our uh, guest and as well as myself at work and play, but uh, in, enjoy the conversation and uh, perhaps listen and uh, pay attention with your ears most of all. Most of all. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks Ter- for having me. Yes, absolutely. So there's, uh, I've had a lot of fun planning today's program with Pauline, and um, so we're going to kind of wander through some things that were on my mind and that we talked about together, and then we will indeed open it up to your questions and comments, and can't wait for that. So there's a long, rich history of the physician writer in this country and many other countries. In more recent years, at least in the U.S., um, if I can dare say that parochially, the motivations sometimes seem equally about a creative outlet as wanting to help solve problems in healthcare, really tough problems. So, Pauline, I thought we'd start off by my asking you, you know, kind of what spurs you on? What's your muse for this for this endeavor? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, that's a great question. You know, it's interesting. I've always been drawn to writing. Um, when I was a child, um, I one of the first things I wanted to do was to learn how to write words so that I could put the stories that were sort of going around in my head down on paper. And subsequently, though, I, I think it's interesting um, because I think the doctor-writer um, has very similar... Um, you know, on the one hand, I think most of us have this creative urge to write, to um, to express ourselves in writing. But I think um, something that's very much a part of our personality and probably, I think, further ingrained over the course of our professional training and our practice is this need to um, minister to patients in some way, um, need to sort of address what you know, their suffering, their diseases, what they're going through, um, and to sort of, you know, our training also trains us to be sort of hyper aware of our surroundings, of not only of the patient, you know, sort of the, the physical signs and symptoms of disease, but also what's around that patient and what may be provoking that disease or causing that disease. So I think it just, you know, our, I, I suppose in a way it's a natural fit, you know, our we are trained to be very vigilant and sensitive to what's around us and to do something about it. And writing is sort of one way that we can do that, I suppose. So it, I, yeah, I think it's, it's sort of a seamless yes. um, intertwining of impulses. <laughs> it's fascinating, and I was just thinking about your saying that um, being trained to be hyper-aware um, 
I think sometimes that gets flipped around from the patient's side, and maybe the physician is hyper-aware, but people aren't always sure what it is that they're noticing, and the patient isn't always sure uh, that it's him or her. So that's something we can maybe uh, get into. So let's drill into this just a little bit more. Uh, you have a weekly column. And so you have to think about, gee, what am I going to talk about next of all the different things that are going out there, uh, going on out there? So I was curious about how you made some choices. And I was thinking we could maybe even use the example of a column that you've got, either it's come out today already or will be out on the uh, Times uh, about uh, storytelling. Yeah. You know, I, when I started writing the column, now it's, it's almost um, three years ago, it's two and a half years ago, I was worried about that. I was worried about finding topics um, to write about. And subsequently, I've discovered that the topics actually aren't all that difficult to find. I mean, there's so much going on in healthcare, and there's so much going on um, in terms of research about um, issues that affect the relationship between patients and doctors. But the hard part, really, is the execution of the columns. Right, right. It's writing them. Yeah. But what I try to do, um, I try to keep my ears open to what's going on um, among physicians I work with, among patients, you know, among anybody, actually. What are sort of the stories that have come up? Um, I obsessively um, try to scan journals. Um, read articles and, and look for topics that um, resonate with my experiences, I suppose, and my colleagues' experiences and my family's experiences, I suppose, as, as patients um, mm-hmm. that resonate in some way. And, you know, it's interesting because we had talked about this match earlier and I was thinking about it and I think one thing that happens, um, and you know, I write about storytelling in today's column, is that as a doctor, one thing that we learn to do is to sort of build our, um, to care for our patients, but to remember our patients and to learn from our patients, not just um, in terms of, uh, of life experiences, but also medical experiences. And I think one thing that does is these, you know, patients often come back to mind when when I see somebody, let's say, with a similar disease mm. or when I hear about an incident or when I read uh, an article in a journal. And for me, those stories sort of anchor a lot of the issues. They, they make them, you know, again, for me, more real, more pressing. Um, more um, more than just um, mm-hmm. you know words on a on a page right and of course you're uh, you know once you decide to sort of pull those stories or things your recollections forward um, you give a lot more shape and um, coherence uh, to all of them and I, I do invite I try. yeah right exactly and I do invite uh, folks uh, so has the uh, piece today gone online yet uh, yes, yes it has okay. it has gone up okay and um, you know it's a, it's fascinating uh, you know I am I've always been fascinated by the relationship between patients and doctors um, since since I was basically a child but um, but. What I write about this week is um, a study that came out last month, at the end of last month, in the Annals of Internal Medicine. And a group of researchers looked at storytelling. They're interested in in an emerging field called narrative communication. And they looked at um, storytelling and its effects on patients with high blood pressure, but a particular group of patients. And, you know, all of us have known, I mean, I think stories are a very human primal sort of um, thing, and we all know how powerful stories can be um, in our lives, you know, from the moment we're children and someone tells us a bedtime story, um, to even, you know, as a physician in the, you know, in the clinic hallways when you are sort of doing a curbside consult about a patient, you you express what you're experiencing or what your patient is experiencing in the form of a story. Now, what these researchers did, which, again, I thought was uh, fascinating and very provocative, was that they recorded stories 
patients telling stories uh, about dealing with hypertension. And these patients, well, particular patients, they're patients from the same community as the patients that were in the study, which was inner city uh, Birmingham, Alabama. And the patients in the video and the patients in the study were all African-American, all with hypertension. And, you know, of all the research that has been out there on storytelling as a way to, um, as, an, as an adjunct, I guess, to, um, to sort of more traditional clinical care, very few have looked at it um, with using the, using the methodology of a randomized prospective study. And these researchers did that. And what they found was fascinating. They found that patients who had watched these videos of stories um, and had watched them at intervals of three months were able to either maintain their blood pressure control or if they had uncontrolled blood pressure at the beginning of the study, actually were able to decrease their blood pressure um, to the same extent that patients in previous studies looking mm. at medications and medication combinations were able to do. So it, it was quite interesting to me. And, and right. um, you know, as a writer, it sort of combined a lot of my own interests. <laughs> yes, definitely. And I, I want to encourage people. So that's in the New York Times today. It's also in the annals. And if I uh, was reading it correctly, that is freely available. Um, uh, there, you can actually look at the uh, uh, the videos. And thanks, Pauline, uh, for alerting me to that earlier, as as well as the text. And we'll get that link in uh, link up there, and it'll also yep, there it is, and uh, we'll have it in the resource uh, document. Um, so I guess just one more kind of broad question. I'm curious whether there, uh, this all this is a kind of column that all seems good anytime we can sort of come up with and, and discover new and creative ways that people might be able to engage with better management of a chronic disease and sort of relate to something more culturally, uh, get us out of this box of is she or he a compliant patient or not with medication, et cetera. Uh, all that's good. I imagine have there been there have been some columns perhaps, or have there been any that have just set off a firestorm? Uh, I'm curious what you make of sort of the comments and uh, whether there have been any sort of lively debates uh, as a result of things you've written. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, it's it's been really a, a, a an educational process for me um, working um, online and and. Um, sort of getting that instantaneous feedback. Yes, instantaneous from, it is. <laughs> yes, from readers. And I remember the first time I went online, um, my editor said, "Okay, be ready." And it was it was it was it was sort of it was heady actually. <laughs> it was sort of like drinking from a fire hose. <laughs> yeah. Um I I do try to read all the comments um and I learn uh, mostly because you know, I have to say that I really feel like I've grown tremendously in reading the comments um, that have been left there. And I think for the most part, the vast majority of them are very, very thoughtful and and um, incredibly um, insightful. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's been really, uh, I mean, you know, I, I was anxious at first, and it's turned out to be, I mean, to be something that I really enjoy in many ways. That's terrific. Yeah, that's uh, good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in terms of columns that have set off sort of, uh, that have, I suppose, um, touched... Um, Nerves. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you know, the first one that did that, um, that I, for me, um, was a column that I wrote um, about the research being done at the Mayo Clinic about burnout among medical students. Uh-huh. And I remember when I read the paper initially, before I spoke to the researchers, the authors, I remember, you know, again, and, you know, I think, I don't know if this is my medical training or just, I'm not sure, but my own experience um, came to mind and experiences of other people I had known. Mm-hmm. And it, burnout and um, and and for some people, depression, they're different things, but, you know, sort of sisters, I suppose, um, for a lot of us in medical school who might have experienced that, it was always sort of a deep, dark secret, right. something that you never talk about. Mm-hmm. And and I 
interviewed the author, who was um, Lottie Derby, who was just a, a brilliant woman. Mm-hmm. Um, but then um, when I started writing about it, I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe I should talk about my difficulties with medical school. Um, and I was a bit anxious about having it go out, um, but I did it. <laughs> and um, with the support of some incredible editors um, and colleagues at the Times. Um, and what surprised me was that within days, um, we had over 700 responses, and many of them yeah. from um, physicians or physicians in training or medical students talking about their own experiences. It was yeah. sort of as if right. the elephant had been, you know, finally recognized. And well, you were brave. Uh, you were brave, and and look what it did for others. Yeah, it's it's always amazing in that way. Uh huh. It, it was it was yep. really amazing, and um, and so that, that was a very interesting experience. One of the other more recent columns that I think. Um, touched on a nerve was one that I did on the shingles vaccine. Um, I had been in contact with um, a primary care physician in the Philadelphia area, Richard Barron, who is part of um, the Greenhouse Internist Group, um, a terrific guy who had emailed me and said, you know, shingles vaccines are really problematic, um, that it's just very difficult for our patients to get them. And, you know, I looked into it and um, interviewed um, uh, somebody who, people who had just written a paper on it, again, which was in the Annals of Internal Medicine. And it, it was amazing to me that here we had this, this terrific discovery, you know, this vaccine that sort of melted together, you know, both the old, oldest parts of medicine, that is, you know, you needed, to, you needed a doctor, and a patient and a syringe and a needle, and that was the treatment. You know, I mean, it was just sort of like, it was really old-fashioned. But it was sort of new in that it was just recently sort of put into our armamentarium. But the irony of all of it was here we had this, and patients weren't getting it for all kinds of reasons. And, um, And what was interesting to me was, again, the reader response, because... First of all, um, shingles and post-herpetic neuralgia, the the accompanying um, very, very painful um, uh, pain that that accompanies shingles, Um, a lot of people had suffered from that. And um, it it was just, it was really Mm. sort of an amazing um, response for me. Right. Well, sort of, right, the uh, pointing out also kind of the, disjunctures between sort of great discoveries, something that can really, really help, and then all the issues about the system and access and exactly, you right. Know, right, you know, right. the implementation, right? Right, right. Uh, um, um, well, that's interesting. I just want to remind everybody, thanks for joining us, and if you are just getting uh, with us, you've been listening to Dr. Pauline Chen. She writes a column for the New York Times called Doctor and Patient. I'm WIHI host Madge Kaplan. Now, Pauline, a little bit, we'll, we're going to do something now that's a little bit perhaps like writing a column. I asked you what you know were some of the things you've been thinking about lately, and I alluded to this in the copy for the program. You said you've been thinking a lot about language um, mm. and the words that are used um, often that sort of fill the ears of uh, uh, doctors and nurses to be, as well as often filling the rooms uh, of patients and families, often people being talked about but not talked with. And um, it's called some sort of an objective presentation, I guess. Uh, there's probably a very clinical or training term for that. So what what's on your mind about language? I think the theme was sort of language that uh, is not perhaps very uh, patient-centered but also is very distancing. Right. You know, I, I've been thinking about that, on, I suppose, on some level for a while. And it may be because words are so much a part of my life now um, and and I guess another reason that it sort of came to mind was I had noticed that um, that I had some difficulty going back and forth between my clinical writing 
and my mm. non-clinical writing. It was, you know, I had the sort of discomfort. I mean, discomfort is probably the wrong word, but, yeah. um, but the sort of uh, anxiety, I suppose, that one has when they are switching <clears throat> languages if, they, if they're bilingual now, or they're not truly bilingual yet, so maybe I'm not truly bilingual yet, but mm-hmm. just it was very difficult or it was strange to go from writing, um, let's say, for the column or a book and then writing um, a clinical note. And around the time that I was mulling over that, um, a, a piece came out in the New York Times Sunday magazine on language by a linguist named Guy Deutscher who had just published a book. Um, and he discusses in the piece how um, early on um, linguists were sort of taken with the idea that um, language formed who we are and would, you know, so that they might extrapolate that, you know, certain people are more organized because their language is very organized. Mm-hmm. And, um, but then that sort of fell out of vogue and people began, linguists, um, researchers in that field began to say that, you know, it's more of an innate thing, that it's a universal innate ability. But what he did was to sort of meld those two in a very interesting way and to say that um, that what language does, it doesn't necessarily determine who we are, but it obliges us to think about certain things in certain ways. And so... You know, uh, that really resonated with me because I grew up, uh, my parents are both immigrants, and they both speak Taiwanese, um, uh, which is one of the dialects in in Asia. um, Uh It's sort of like Mandarin Chinese, um, but a lot more tones. Um, But it's interesting because, excuse me, um, when they refer to he or she, the third person singular. It's all the same. It all sounds the same. And what is interesting is, you know, when they speak English, you know, especially when I was younger, they're, they're better now, they had a difficult time saying he or she or using them correctly. And and it wasn't that they didn't recognize that men and women were different, but that it was just not something that they thought about when they were speaking. Just as in English, you know, one thing that we think a lot about is time, you know, the specifics of time. Is this the past perfect? Is this the, you know, right. present tense? Is this the, I mean, we're very, very precise, but other languages aren't as precise about that. So, um, so I was thinking, well, this is interesting because, you know, this may apply, or this seems to apply to medicine as well. And when you think about the way we present in clinical medicine, um, there's a a very, very um, strict structure, a a very set structure to our patient presentations. You know, the patient was a 35-year-old male who presented um, to the emergency room with blah-de-blah-de-blah. And it's always done and this I think is interesting, in the past tense. I mean, in the, in the passive voice, not the past tense, the passive voice. Yeah. And medical sociologists have noted that for a long time. But, you know, you, uh, you know it's it sort of, reading all of these things sort of got me wondering, does it in some way um, oblige us in a way to think of patients and to think of their problems and to think of our own roles in healthcare in a certain way? Um, Mm. And so I thought that was fascinating. And and then as I read that and thought about that, I realized that one of the, the real difficulties I was having in going back and forth between my different types of writing was the passive voice. Yeah, interesting. Um, now, in that case, that's fascinating. In the case of kind of this very formal sort of presentation, is this just a case with medicine, a case of kind of, um, you know, we're just bringing a tradition forward? Um, is it more that it's a way to continue to reinforce uh, the authority <laughs> of the physician and the provider? And I guess um, one question I have is, can you imagine different ways that that could be said, that the same information could be conveyed? 
Yeah, you know, it's, that's, that's an interesting question because um, on the one hand, um, there, there's definitely a structure to the presentation. And when you sit, when you know the way presentations are done, when you listen, there are certain things that you hone in on, that you listen for as the person is presenting. And you know when they will come because of the way presentations are done across the country and and potentially you know around the world and, you know there was a a writer about 25 years ago who wrote about this and and compared it to the bards of old that they hmm. presented their stories with a certain in a certain way so that the listeners always knew what to expect or where they could find key pieces of information so in a sense i think that you know that's a really important part of our communication to one another and, you know, p- part of me wonders that if you decided to disrupt that, to change that, um, it, it, it would mean more than just changing the la- language. It would mean sort of the, uh, you know, people might not find the information that they mm-hmm. are so used to finding within the context of the story. Yeah, um, that, right. It seems interesting, and I guess also who's having the conversation. So it's kind of uh, right. wh- who, who matters most in, or what matters most in that communication. So that, that does raise a lot of interesting issues. Exactly. I wanna, yeah, I want to get one more quick question in just to sort of seed some things for um, our listeners to kind of chat about and uh, comment on. One of the other things we talked about, which you were sort of uh, teeing off of language or things that uh, bind us together or maybe pull us apart or get in the way of the doctor-patient relationship, um, interestingly, you were saying that uh, given the great progress that perhaps is being made in, in terms of fighting hospital-acquired infections or certainly learning what best practices are and precautions that providers should take, patients should take, families should take, and we're by no means can declare victory on hand hygiene or anything like that, but you were saying that you wondered about some of the actual uh, distancing factor features of all of that as well. I'm yeah. Not, so that, yeah. that that's an interesting. Uh, say, say just a, a little bit about that, and then we'll we'll open things up. Oh, I, I thought that I think that topic is really um, interesting. If you you know more and more in hospitals, um, patients um, because of multiple drug resistant um, strains of bacteria, patients are being isolated and mm-hmm. precautions are, you know, there are all kinds of barrier precautions that go up. And if you, you know, ever hang around long enough, you see that those precautions, although they're intended to, you know, to protect patients, not only providers, but patients, um, and not only the patient in question, but you know all the patients in the hospital, um, they also can really pose a barrier um, between doctors and patients. And so, um, and and you know, I had noticed. I, I read first of all, I had read a couple of pieces um, on it, including a wonderful narrative um, about um, a doctor written by a doctor who had um, developed um, an infection. And he sort of talked about the the whole notion of gloves and using gloves with patients and how that separated him from patients, but that now he did it because he had developed this horrible um, uh, MRSA infection. Um, And, you know, after reading that, you know, I, I realized that I was just as, you know, I was just as guilty. I mean, I had done the exact things that, you know, he had mentioned in his paper, in his narrative, which is, you know, instead of taking the five minutes to put on the gown and the gloves and the mask, that I was standing sometimes when I thought I didn't have enough time outside the patient's room, mm-hmm. sort of shouting in yep. so that I didn't have to sort of gear up. Mm. And I thought of, you know, other examples where, you know, patients are in the ICU at the end of their life and on precautions, and nobody ever touches them, that their last memories of, hmm. of human contact or their final 
Their, their final contact with human beings is through gloves and behind masks. And it was, you know, I, I realize that it's a very complex right. problem because at the same time you don't want to disregard these sorts of things right. and start, you know, spreading things when, you know, mm-hmm. when you don't have to. But it was interesting because I began to talk to some of um, the people who are doing research on barrier precautions. And they told me that there is a push now that I mean they they're realizing that maybe we don't need as much as we thought we needed. Mm. So uh, you know I think it's a fanta- you know it's it's a fantastic example um, of you know of right. how the success of our advances in many ways sort of distances us from one another. Definitely. Well, I hope uh, that topic and uh, the one around the language, um, um, and particularly this last one, too, that it's something we'll hear uh, more about from you because I can't think of anyone better to kind of bring bring out, well, bring out all all these different issues and uh, whether there are some uh, new ways for us to think about best practices, uh, given all the things that we're trying to achieve. So uh, this is uh, just kind of setting the scene. Um, <coughs> excuse me. This is a match with a bit of a cold. Uh, Pauline Chen uh, joining me by phone and computer here. And now Matt is going to remind all of you who've joined us today uh, for this conversation how you can chat in some questions and comments. Matt. Thanks, Madge. The chat's now open to everyone. Uh, As a reminder, please remember to chat to all participants. Uh, That way you can share any of your questions or comments and everybody will see it. Uh, We'll periodically be pulling questions or comments out of the chat and uh, we'll address those on the call. All right, that's simple enough. And uh, anybody, uh, remember, do chat to all participants so that we can all see them. Don't be shy, otherwise you'll just keep hearing me asking things, uh, but we'd love to uh, have you be part of the conversation as well. Uh, I'm just going to start us off here. Uh, One thing, Pauline, that you did suggest to me is that, uh, and you're sort of hinting at this, I think, even right now, uh, that your explorations have sometimes uh, held kind of held you accountable in certain ways and maybe caused you to change certain behaviors. And I'm curious uh, if you've got any sort of good examples of that. Oh, um, absolutely. I think they um, they definitely do. And and in many ways, I am grateful um, that I can write about these, that I I am writing about these, because I think... um, that they they do change the way that I view myself and um, and, and like I said the readers comment as well they all change the way um, that I view the work I do um, it's interesting I um, I did a piece uh, maybe a year ago on mindfulness um, there was a a, a wonderful um, article that came out in JAMA um, looking at mindfulness and its effect um, on a group of primary care physicians um, sort of a looking at it at looking at it as a way to sort of combat burnout but I was fascinated by um, by what they were doing and how they were doing it and and I found myself and you know this is I have to say this is one of the really fortunate um, parts about writing the column at least for me is I I I'm able to talk to um, some of the people who are doing amazing research out there on, you know, different parts of clinical care, and um, and so um, so I talked to them. But I just remember that the following day, in when I went to see patients, you know, I found myself washing my hands with such mindfulness, <laughs> or just sort of trying mm-hmm. to employ employ the the things that I'd heard about and read about, and um, yeah, and it was really interesting. And you know, I hope you know you'd have to obviously ask my patients, but I hope that the writing um, has made me a better doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's made me more um, sensitive to. Um, the patient's perspective. I hope so. Yeah, interesting. So a couple things, I think things are floating in here right now. Um, Somebody has suggested that the opaque masks is a tremendous barrier between the physician and his or her patients, especially ones with hearing loss. 
and it has the patient often depending more on lip reading. Um, and uh, that's a kind of an interesting issue there in terms of sort of what the fullness of what we need when we need communication there. Absolutely. A um, couple people are asking you to say a little bit more about what do you think the role is that the patient assumes in the relationship between the physician and patient and perhaps in that formal, also related to that formal presentation. Maybe you could just elaborate on that a little bit. Where, where is the patient in there? Uh, in the in the presentation. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the other, I mean, that is really actually the other point of it, that the patients aren't involved mm-hmm. in many ways, and that they are, they are um, you know, when you look at the language, when you, when you analyze it, I mean, they're really objectified. And, um, and, and, I mean, it's, it's, um, it, to me, it's just, it's such a, um, it's so interesting because we use the language. I mean, it is, it is really, it's so, it's used so frequently, it's used all the time. And yet when you analyze it, I mean, the patient is objectified. And a lot of the things that happen, so for instance, if you talk about a patient, and the patient's experience is, um, is never sort of fleshed out totally. For instance, you'll say that you know a, a 75-year-old gentle, 75-year-old male presented with esophageal carcinoma with, with esophagus cancer, but what you don't fill in there is the suffering that that patient, that person, has gone through in dealing with this tumor, with not being able to eat, with not being able to swallow, the fear that that person may have. Um, now, you know, we were talked earlier about you know, if you changed it. And, you know, I, I have to say that I have, you know, in my own little way, I've tried to use the active voice more often in my notes, although it sounds really funny. I mean, it, just, it doesn't look right, and I know that, <laughs> that people read it and they go, well, what is this note? But, um, but you know, I, I don't know if it's possible to change the language that has been so entrenched in medicine just as I don't know if it's possible to change the Chinese language so that hmm. people say he and she differently. But I do think that it's very possible to, to make ourselves more aware of the power of the language, about what it obliges us to think about. And, to, and, but, and I think by being aware of that, by being cognizant of that, I think that the negative repercussions of it won't be, you know, won't be quite as as detrimental. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that has happened relatively recently is including families during codes, you know, about letting families come in because for, you know, forever, you know, I was trained that when a patient codes, you don't let the family in. But I think if we look at things differently, if we look at our present, if we realize that our language sort of prevents us from being inclusive, maybe we could be inclusive. We could still give the presentations, but still be inclusive, you know? Right, right, right. Yeah. You interviewed earlier somebody who I think is really making a huge difference in that, um, and Tom Delbanco. Yes, yes. And his Open Notes project. Yes. Which is, you know, making doctor's notes completely open and transparent so that patients can look at them. And, you know, I think that's a wonderful example of how, I mean, you don't have to change the way you write your notes, but the fact that it's transparent sort of really transforms, I think, the experience for everybody. It's interesting. Uh, Thanks for that. Uh, Listening to Pauline Chen here. Uh, author of the column Doctor and Patient in the New York Times and also author of the book Final Exam. Several people are asking, uh, both when it comes to language, uh, sort of wondering uh, which way is humanism going, where is the narrative going, and even sort of where, um, it's funny, you were talking earlier, almost being able to sort of recall patients, keeping a, a certain narrative and story going in your head. Somebody here is asking, in some ways, that the electronic uh, health record uh, with has a lot, maybe a lot of features and cut-and-paste ways to sort of keep all the facts in there, but it doesn't necessarily lend to nuance 
or the story or the narrative that you're trying to put together. So I see a lot of people are kind of giving you some column ideas. To, uh, yeah, to no, I think that's terrific. That's so that's terrific. An, and yeah. you know, talking about cut and paste and how my column affects the way I write. I I wrote a an earlier column on electronic medical records, um, not specifically addressing cut and paste, but um, but the idea of cut and paste sort of came up in one of my discussions with uh, one of the authors. And, you know, the next, you know, I have to tell you, I've made a concerted effort to do much less cutting and pasting than I did beforehand in my patient notes. Now, here's an interesting um, thing that somebody has asked, and I, I want to make sure I understand it. This person is saying, uh, some of my clients comment on el- unhealthy habits, smoking or obesity of their physicians. How does one respond without jeopardizing that relationship? So that's an interesting issue with a shared sort of narrative out there in the world about, you know, different things we should all be doing to be healthier. Um, Is that something that you've uh, done any thinking about or um, sort of have any thoughts on? Yeah. Um, It's, you know, I think... Tara Parker Pope, um, who writes for the Times. Yeah, the um, Well column. Uh-huh. Yeah, who does a, a fabulous job with the Well column. Uh, um, her, in in our discussions, um, you know, so much, so many times when we talk about healthcare, we focus on the negatives, the you know, the diseases, the, the quote unquote negatives, um, but. You know, one thing that she has encouraged me to do is to sort of think about wellness and sort of focusing on that. Um, I think, which I think is so important. I mean, it it sort of speaks to the way, um, you know, our healthcare system is sort of uh, structured, or or the foundation of it, which is basically on acute care, on illness, on on you know taking care of people after they've sort of gone, um, become really ill or the cancer has sort of appeared and stuff, rather than preventive health care and, and emphasizing things that you can do to stay as healthy as you can possibly be. Um, I, you know, I know that I don't do a great job of that, um, mm-hmm. and, and I need to do better on it, and, um, and it, it's, it's but I think it's interesting during when you interact with patients and you talk about that because I think, again, and sort of this is sort of the, the art of medicine, which, um, which I love so much. But I think it's really, um, you know what, you know, I can only speak for myself because yeah. it's my experience, but yeah. I think one thing that I've found is that there are some patients who want to hear about what I do um, or what I struggle with, and that there are others that don't really want to hear that, <laughs> right. Um, right. you know, and yep. and would rather just, and it goes again, it sort of all connects with today's column, which is on storytelling. I mean, there's some people who, you know, you're the doctor, but, you know, you're not me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that message may be better conveyed um, with personal narratives from people more like them who have struggled and hopefully succeeded with the same issues. I don't know, that's a great question. Yeah, there's a bunch of them here. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Here's an age-old question that's coming from a colleague and friend, Linda Kenny, and I think she's asking, uh, from your perch and experience, given that you're interested in the dynamic, do you have advice for patients who want to share their stories for change and trying to engage the medical community. This is something that uh, sometimes uh, seems to bedevil uh, the improvement world a lot, sort of ways to better, uh, more effectively engage, especially doctors. Yeah. You know, I, I think that that is so important, that, um, that we get our stories out there, whether um, we are doctors or patients, because, because of the myriad types of experiences that people have. Um, I, I think one of the most impressive things to me 
um, lately, um, uh, you know, lately I mean in the last decade, mm-hmm. um, has been the emergence of um, of people writing. I mean, the internet actually, and sort of blogs, yeah, and of um, groups of um, e- the e-patient movement has been really amazing to me. Um, even microblogging, Twitter. I mean for people to get their stories out and to share them and to sort of create a community um, that can initiate, that can push for change. Um, you know, I, again, and I'm, I can only speak from my point of view, but as one physician, I have to say that the, that the stories that I read on any of those platforms just have moved me, have changed me, have alerted me to things that I've never understood or realized before. Do you think more doctors like you are reading this? I think this is what's so interesting about having you here is uh, I'm curious and, you know, whether uh, folks, you know, also who've tuned in, do you think that perhaps patients and families and folks who are maybe organized or more mobilized and also sharing stories, do you think physicians are bumping into this material or deliberately seeking it out more than one might think? Because I, I think, oh, I, yeah, I, go ahead. So I, I, think, I think they are reading the material. I think there is, you know, I, I believe, and if, if the nature of the comments that I see from time to time on the well blog regarding my column or any indication, I think that we are reading each other's materials, Mm -hmm. that there is definitely, you know, I I have to believe that all of us, you know, we all want the same thing. We want the best care for our patients. And in pursuing that, um, I, I do think that People have sought out, you know, I, when I, um, it was interesting because before there was, um, there, there were such resources to sort of really put a lot of stories out there, um, it was difficult for me, I mean, in my own experience, to get, um, to ask mm-hmm. patients about their experiences and sort of be outside of sort of the exam room. Yep. You know, I, you know, and I tried to do that. I remember trying to do that, particularly with patients who were in the ICU and sedated. You know, what was their experience? What do they remember? You know, we, when I remember when I, you know, cared for them as a resident, I, I didn't really. I mean, you thought they were just asleep, but there's a whole experience behind there. Mm. Now we can look it up on the internet, that there are people that blog about it, that write about it, that, that, that um, tweet about it. Mm-hmm. And it's, to me, it's just so enriching. It is so out there that, um, that I, think, I think it can't help but um, that kind of conversation in that sphere can't help but it cannot I mean, it has to help in some way. Well, it's interesting. It sounds like what you're saying, among other things, is that uh, while we put a great stake, of course, on the actual encounters uh, with providers and our ability to convey as much as possible our stories and uh, wanting the fullest of kinds of communication, but you're also suggesting that folks uh, should just keep putting this stuff out there in all the various vehicles and certain kinds of communities and that others in the provider community are looking looking at it and maybe for some that's an even easier way for them uh, to be learning. So I don't know. I'll, I'll take that as kind of a, a silver lining, uh, even if sometimes not the best things don't always happen just uh, face-to-face. I wanted to also, uh, one person had asked whether or not, I know there's certainly studies that suggest that better communication skills and better communication between patients and physicians, et cetera, can yield to better outcomes. Somebody was asking whether anybody was looking at this patient presentation issue unto itself as one that might in any way uh, kind of, in, you know, have some um, effect on on outcomes of any sort. So sort of somebody curious about research in that area. Yeah, you know, not not that I know of, but okay. if if any um, of the 
the participants know of anything, please let me know. <laughs> I'd love to <laughs> read more about it. There, there was, um, you know, there were, there was an issue of literature and medicine in the 70s, I believe. Yeah. Um, uh, or no, no, actually in the 90s, or early 90s, it came out that focused on patient presentations. And there were several uh, wonderful scholarly articles about it. Um, and I thought that was really quite interesting. There also, um, there's a medical sociologist named Renee Fox who has written about it, mm. um, about the passive voice, the use of the passive voice. Okay. Um, but in terms of sort of, you know, an outcomes-based thing, like if you change the language, what happened? I don't know of anyone that's done any work like that. But if anyone does know, please let me know. Absolutely. Feel free to chat it in, and maybe we'll we'll dig around a little bit more. Um, I want to just um, get one or two more quick things in, uh, including I also want to remind everybody that IHI's 12th Annual International Summit uh, is coming up. It's about building new partnerships. Uh, it's in Dallas, Texas, March 20th through the 22nd focusing on innovative strategies uh, for ambulatory care and strengthening connections with the rest of the care continuum. Maureen Bizignano, our own president and CEO, will be one of the keynote speakers. There are some 50 other sessions, other keynotes, et cetera. All that information is on the website, and I hope you'll take a look. One of the things, uh, Pauline, we also had discussed, I was saying that um, somebody had written an article in which there continues to be a fair amount of grousing and concern about just how much weight to give patient satisfaction scores um, mm. and changes coming from uh, the uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services that would base some 30% of a hospital's incentive payments on uh, what are sometimes fondly referred to as HCAP scores. And one of the things I loved about the article was that there was a suggestion that if you happen to be a patient or in a hospital in New York, New Jersey, or Pennsylvania, you're, you're not in any mood to say anything nice about anybody and so <laughs> <laughs> to feed into a certain stereotype. Perhaps a bit, a bit, a bit grumpier. So I don't know um, if that's you know one of the things you know physicians and hospitals fear the most. But have you dug it all into the whole patient satisfaction uh, movement? I mean, real dollars, I guess, are going to be on the table around some of this soon. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's interesting because I've talked to some colleagues about it, um, and you know. There, there's a whole range of opinions out there. Um, I, I, you know, my thoughts on about it, and I, I think the discussion that I had um, earlier this week with um, Tom Houston, who wrote that, um, who was the lead author of that article on storytelling and uh, patients with hypertension. Um, you know, I think what what we need to do is to, you know, I think inevitably when you take care of patients, there will be um, some disconnects between doctors and patients for, you know, all sorts of reasons. There may be patients who come from cultures that historically distrust doctors. There may be, um, you know, issues of health literacy involved. Um, there may be just simply personality differences. Um, but I think what we need to do is to also, because I think this is going to be best for patients ultimately, is I think we need to find ways to improve that communication, to improve the chances that the outcomes will be good. Um, so, you know, for instance, the storytelling idea, one of the things that um, um, Dr. Houston and I discussed was this, you know, future scenario, and, and it's really a pie in the sky right now. But mm -hmm. you know, of, of you know, having some kind of web-based resource where patients and doctors could plug in their specifics, you know, you know what they're like, almost like a Match.com, really, into a program, and the program would give you, would spit out the the videos that of patients who were similar to you with the same problems. And maybe that, you know, if the patient listened to that, it would help, you know, address some of the issues of, of, of outcomes. Like, could we improve outcomes doing that? You know, I, I think what we need are more tools within 
the clinical realm in the patient-doctor relationship to help, you know, get better outcomes instead of, um, you know, there will be people, there will always be mismatches in the relationship. The question is, how can we overcome those so that we can take the best possible care or our patients can get the best possible care. Right. So keeping your eye also on on, on the ball of, of what really matters. Exactly. I, I, exactly. I think so. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you I think just one final question here as we sort of come to the top of the hour. Uh, Judy Fleischman who's sitting here with us, one of our IHI fellows asked this in chat and she was say, uh, kind of picking up on your comment uh, of the effect of your columns as well as sort of patient experiences that you've had and, and sort of wondering if there's anything that is especially um, memorable for you uh, in terms of sort of any of the stories or impact uh, that your, um, you know, just comments uh, from people uh, either who have responded to your columns or really who seem to be responding uh, to some of the things that you're trying to do differently. That may be kind of a hard uh, curveball question to ask you here at the end, but uh, anything uh, especially that's memorable? Yeah, you know, there's one thing. I mean, there, there are, you know, I have to say there are a lot. I mean, I, I just feel very lucky to be doing what I'm doing. But there was one case that was particularly um, memorable. Um, I wrote a column, um, I, th- I think it must have been about a year ago now, um, on what has been called by some people um, the choking game, which is um, something that teenagers um, will sometimes engage in, which is you basically, you know, huh. choke yourself, you know, uh, to the point of, you know, where you black out um, uh. and they but then you sort of let yourself come back again and there's this belief that it gives you some incredible high uh. and um, there was a pediatrician in um, Cincinnati um, who had written a paper on it and about the prevalence of it and about the fact that not many physicians knew pediatricians knew that it was out there or knew sort of the lingo that kids use to describe it or the telltale signs, symptoms and signs. And I wrote about it because I had um, cared for um, a patient who had um, mm. engaged in that. He, he was actually um, brain dead. He was one of the um, organ donors that, um, ah. that I encountered. And it was tragic to me because he was this, you know, beautiful young man and he had done this um so i wrote about it and um and about i guess two weeks later i heard um and it was from the friend of a friend (laughs) yeah um or of of a friend i mean it was it was several distant connections that that person had read that article and had copied it off and left it and had left it on her bed and, and had not sort of, um, and had done that, sorry, had done that because um, there was a kid that she was worried about in her school. She was a teacher. Mm-hmm. And um, and she brought it up. And, you know, it turned out to be a, a case of, you know, the kid was trying to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the fact, you know, she said to this friend of a friend of a friend, that um, that she thought that the knowing about it might have saved that kid's life. Absolutely. And it was just, I was just, right. I don't know. When I heard that, I was Very, okay. really thrilled. Yeah, I bet. Um, chain of events there, and you never know. And I think sometimes yeah. uh, when words hit the page or online, you know, you hope uh, they're migrating out there. And I appreciate, thank you very much. Uh, and so nice that you got... <laughs> That the feedback uh, came back to you in as interesting a way, perhaps, as your own information went out there. Well, I want to extend a sincere thank you to you, Pauline Chen, for giving of your time today. And-
and giving of this column, which uh, we can all continue to read. Check out the one that's there today on the power of storytelling. It's fascinating. There's videos really neat of uh, annals of internal medicine to be offering. That stuff is free to non-subscribers, so that's terrific. Um, and uh, I want to thank all our participants today. A reminder, when you do log off, you can download the chat uh, and any other information uh, that we share today. Please check out the archive tomorrow uh, morning as well as a nice resource document that will pick up on all of this, um, things that were mentioned today. Uh, next, WIHI, February 24th, 2 to 3 p.m., same time, same station. The newest innovator on the block, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. We're going to have Rick Gilfillan, the acting director of uh, CMI, although I'm told they're not trying to use so many of those acronyms, but he is the acting director, and he will be my guest on the February 24th WI Chine. You can enroll right now uh, if you go to the website. I want to uh, extend also a big thank you uh, to everyone who makes WIHI possible, Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and Vicki Minden. And again, Pauline Chen, thank you so much. Uh, next time we have you back in, back on the program, maybe we'll get you over here to the studio, okay? I'd love to. All right. Thank you again. <laughs> thank you. All right. And uh, just a quick reminder, the music that opens and closes WIHI, that's an original arrangement by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Zapasoa on piano. So thank you. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care, most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Check out all the resources. Good day. Mm-hmm.